Well, many years ago, Dr. Ed Welch wrote a book, and the book was entitled, When People Are Big and God is Small. And the focus of the book was to argue, and and biblically, I think, that many times when we struggle with different sin issues and and problems in our lives related to things like the fear of man and, and anxiety between that, looking for approval in others, peer pressure, He argued that the issue is not fundamentally with those things, but rather there's a deeper problem, and the deeper problem is that you are thinking about God too small. And so he argued that in times when we are struggling with the fear of man and and being captivated by that, that we are thinking of ourselves and we are thinking of others as too important, and we are thinking of God very much too little. Well, as we come to the book of Job tonight, we'll recognize that Job is not struggling with an issue of of peer pressure or the fear of man, but his foundational issue is the same. He is struggling to understand the circumstances in his life, and we'll talk about those in a minute, but he is struggling to understand them because they don't make sense to him. Maybe you and I are in similar boats right now. No matter how hard you try to do things the right way, life doesn't seem to be going the way it should. Maybe you have a relationship in your life that no matter how patient and kind and selfless you are to that person, there is still tension and frustration between you. Maybe uh, no matter how careful and how wise of a steward you try to be, God continues to take away the finances and month after month, it just doesn't seem to balance out. Maybe no matter how faithful you are to train and instruct and discipline your children, they are still difficult and rebellious. No one has ever had that experience, I understand, but it's a possibility. Maybe no matter how many doctor's visits and scans and tests, and no matter how much you beg God in prayer, that diagnosis isn't budging. Maybe you have different problems than all these problems I have in my life. Maybe it's not even in your life. Maybe you're, you're looking out in the world and just saying, this world is a mess. It's falling apart. And where is God in all this? Why are the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering? What is the answer? Well, as we come to Job 42 tonight, we're going to see in Job's response to God that the answer is not actually an answer. The answer is a change in perspective. The answer is a profound realization that actually people are very small and God is very big. God is actually the one in charge. You and I are owed no explanations for why he does what he does. And we still, even when we don't understand, need to trust God because he is sovereign, he is gracious, he is perfectly wise. We can trust him. So that brings us to our theme for our passage tonight, and that is, even when we don't understand, we must learn to trust God's sovereignty over our lives. Even when we don't understand, we must trust God's sovereignty over our lives. If you have your Bibles, I had you turn to Job 42. Actually, turn back with me to Job chapter 1, because we need to do a very quick flyover of the story to make sure we understand where we're at. You can't read the last page of the story and think you have all the information, all right? But we're going to go through this quickly, because I think most of you know this story pretty well. 
The book of Job, we might give it a theme of suffering and sovereignty that'll come up clearly as we walk through. But we find out in Job chapter one, verses one to three, that there is a man named Job and that that man is righteous. He is blameless. He fears God. And later in the chapter, God calls him his servant. So this man is an Old Testament believer. He is right before God and is striving to live that way. We find out in verse 2 that he's a family man. He has 10 children at least. And then in verse 3, we find out that he is immensely wealthy and that he has a good reputation among the people. This seems like a great guy to be friends with. We're going to model ourselves after Job. Well, later in the chapter, Satan comes before God and Satan comes to accuse Job and say, God, Job only loves and follows and fears you because you've given him all this stuff. Look at all these things that you provided for him. His life is great. Of course he follows you. Well, God, in his infinite wisdom, to prove Satan's foolishness, to prove Job's faith, to prove his own faithfulness to Job, allows Satan to test Job in his life. And so Satan goes and he takes away everything. Look in verse chapter 1, verse 14. Job finds out that his oxen and donkeys were taken away and that the servants watching them were killed, verse 15. Verse 16, he finds out all of his sheep were taken, uh, were consumed, and the servants as well. In verse 17, the camels were taken and the servants with them, and only this messenger escaped to tell him. In verses 18 and 19, we find out that Job's whole family, his sons and daughters, were killed in a tragic accident. We come to chapter 2, and Satan gets even a little bit more leash from God. He's allowed to afflict Job personally in his health. And so verse 9, or excuse me, verse 7, Satan uh, afflicts Job with sore boils uh, over his whole body. He is just miserable. And we come, by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 9, Job's wife looks at him and says, Just curse God and die. Be done with it. She's a sweetheart, isn't she? Job left with nothing but this miserable wife. Everything else has been taken away from him. And yet Job responds in verse 10, and he says, You speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Job's got his head on his shoulders. Look, we can't just say God's only going to give us good things, and when he gives us something difficult, we flip out on him. We can't do that. We, we have to think well about what God has given us. At the end of chapter 1, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sang that earlier. Job, at least at this point, has, has a reasonable understanding of how he should respond to this difficulty. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, Job's three friends arrive. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they made an appointment together to come sympathize with him and comfort him. And verse 13 says, They sat with him for a week without saying a word because he was so miserable in pain. Well, beginning in chapter 3 and running through the rest of the book is a long dialogue between Job, these three friends, and a few other characters we'll see in a minute. But they talking back and forth and trying to understand what happened in Job's life. Why? What brought this about? Is God sovereign over this? Is he just in this? What is happening? What is going on? 
And Job, honestly, as we track his responses through, through the book, he struggles. He goes on a little bit of a roller coaster. Sometimes he is very just distraught. Sometimes he's just confused and he doesn't understand. Sometimes he is trying really hard to, to see the good and to trust in the Lord. Sometimes he gets so angry that he yells at his friends and yells at God. But for the next 29 chapters, Job and his friends argue back and forth about these things, and, and honestly, with varying levels of accuracy, okay? There are some times when Job's friends say things that are absolutely correct and very profound. There are times when Job's friends say things that are they're just wrong. And so as Job and his friends go back and forth, they're struggling to understand what is going on in Job's life and why. And then, eventually, we get down to chapter 13. <clears throat> this is a turning point because, for a time, Job accepted the tragedy and said, there's nothing I can do about this, I just need to make the best of it, for good or for bad. But in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Behold, he's responding to his friend, Behold, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But listen to this. This is what he wants. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. Okay, I've had enough. I'm ready for some answers. Chapter 13, verse 15, he says, Though God slay me, I will hope in him. So he's not concerned about his salvation, his eternal destination. He, he's satisfied with that. If I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. But, <laughs> chapter 13, verse 15, Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. I want an audience with God. I want to understand what's going on. Later through the book, in, in chapter 19 and, and chapter 23, he, he really accuses God of being unjust. Why have you done this to me? Are you assigning me guilt and blame when, when I've been guiltless? Job chapter 30, verse 20, he says, I cry to you for help and you don't answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. And Job 31, verse 35 he says, oh, that I had someone to hear me. Let the Almighty answer. I just want to know what's going on. I deserve an answer, God. That segues into chapter 32. Beginning in chapter 32, another character arrives. His name is Elihu. He's another friend of Job's, but he's a little bit younger than the other men, and so he waited until they were done, and then he interjects. Well, in the beginning of Job 32, it tells us that, that he really needed to talk. He says he is so angry that he feels like he's going to burst. He's angry because he feels like Job has justified himself before God and that he has done nothing wrong and he deserves an audience. <laughs> Elihu really doesn't pull any punches. Chapter 33, verse 12 and 13, he says, Let me tell you, Job, you are not right in this. God bless friends that are blunt, right? You are not right in this. God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he doesn't give an account of all his doings? God's bigger than you, and he doesn't owe you an explanation for what he's doing. You're going to complain that he doesn't explain everything to you? In chapter 34, verse 10, Elihu says, Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. You're saying God's being unjust? God can't be unjust. Chapter 36, verse 26 he says, Behold, God is exalted, and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable. He says, Job, you can't even understand God. Why do you want an audience with him and demand answers? God is the one who is completely unsearchable. 
And that, Elihu's statements there, transition perfectly into Job chapter 38. Flip over there. And that begins kind of the final section of this dialogue that finishes with our conclusion in Job 42, 1 to 6. Because in chapter 38, verse 1, another character enters the scene, and this is a big one. It's God. God comes in verse 1, and he answers Job out of the whirlwind and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God intervenes and responds to Job. Who are you that is hiding counsel by your ignorance? And then in chapter 38 and 39, God articulates his power revealed in his creation. He talks about how he created the earth and and the sea, about how he manages the stars, about how he knows where light and dark come from, about how he uh, controls the weather and he cares for all the animals of the earth. And then flip over in chapter 40, it begins when God speaks to Job again. In verse 2, he says, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Uh, You think I'm doing something wrong. You want to talk about it? You want to argue about it? Let him who reproves God answer it. You say you have something to talk about? Let's hear it. Well, Job, in one sense wisely, uh, verse 3 says, He answered the Lord in verse 4, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. And Job says, I don't think I have anything to say. And so God goes on, chapter 40 and verse 41, God articulates his power revealed in his creation and management of these two great creatures, one he calls behemoth and one he calls leviathan. This is very much not the point of our message tonight, but I do not believe that they are a hippopotamus and a crocodile, and we can talk about that later if you would like. I know that I disagree with profound theologians on that, all right? Now, We come to chapter 42, and chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, really finishes this whole section from chapter 3, verse 1, through 42, verse 6, and the dialogue in trying to understand the circumstances of Job's life, and that's where we come to tonight. And so we return to our original question in the beginning is, when life doesn't make sense, when we don't understand, how can we trust God and his sovereignty with our circumstances? Well, in our passage, we're going to find out exactly that. In Job's response, we're going to see three steps to trusting God in our circumstances. Number one, we find in verses one and two, the first step to trusting God in our circumstances is we need to remember God's perfect sovereignty. We need to remember God's perfect sovereignty. That is, God alone has the power and the authority to accomplish all of his purposes. We need to remember that. So we find in chapter 42, verse 1, Job answered the Lord, and he said, I know that you can do all things. I know that you can do all things. The first thing Job remembers is God's unlimited power. His unlimited power. One way to remember God's sovereignty is to remember that God can do all things things. He can do, he is capable, he has the power to do all things or or everything. God can do whatever he wants. Now, let's make some caveats and be careful about our language here. What we are not saying is that God can violate his own nature or his character. And so, obviously, the scripture teaches God cannot sin. James chapter 1 verse 13, God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. 
Also, God can't violate his own, his own nature and the things that he has designed for the world. And so you have your atheist co-worker that says, oh, God can do anything. Oh, can he make a square circle? Or when I was in high school, is can he make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? And you look at them and you say, well, God wrote the laws of logic and physics, so I don't know. But when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And then you look at your friend and you say, but if you don't repent and believe, you're not going to get the chance to ask him. You see, these ridiculous, this, these contradictions that people come up with aren't going to absolve them of accountability when it comes to judgment day. They can say God can't make a square circle all they want. They need to face the reality of the scripture. So God cannot sin. He can't, he can't act in violation of his own nature or character. But that's not the point here. The point is, Job is looking at what is going on in his life and remembering, oh yeah, God can do whatever he wants. Do we see examples of that in scripture? Of course we do. You remember in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Well, you remember the context of that? He says, come back next year and Sarah will have a son. God gave a son to Abraham and Sarah when they were 100 years old and 90, respectfully, respectively. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? You remember in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 when Aram and Moab and Edom come against Jehoshaphat and he prays in chapter 20 verse 6 of 2 Chronicles, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens and are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. By the end of that story, the three invading armies had destroyed each other and Israel didn't have to lift a finger. You remember in Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples and those listening, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than what? Than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You remember the, the disciples' response? They said, whoa, 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 whoa. Who can be saved at all then? If it's that difficult, who can be saved? And what does he say? Oh, with, with you, it's, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God can do whatever he wants. God is perfectly powerful. He has unlimited power. Alice and I were reading a library book the other day, and it was called something like, Is a Blue Whale the Biggest Thing That There Is? And just so you know, I know my animals. I was like, yes, it is. Turns out that wasn't the point of the book. The book started with that, and they said, no, Mount Everest is bigger than a blue whale, and, and, and the world is bigger than Mount Everest. And it went, went up, and, and ladies and gentlemen, there must have been a page ripped out of the back of that book because the last page in that book said the universe is the biggest thing that there is. And so if you know me, I have no problem rewriting children's books on the fly. And I said, Alice, what is the one thing bigger than the universe? And after a couple of answers, which showed that she wasn't paying attention to my reading as rapidly as I thought she was, she remembered that God is bigger than everything. God is bigger than you. I, I wish I had a fancy, catchy way to say that to where you would remember, but that's one of those simple truths that you're just going to have to sit on for a while. God is bigger than you. Job says he can do all things. When God is explaining himself to Job here in chapter 38, he says this, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? 
Who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and I set a bolt and doors and I said, thus far you shall come but no farther and here shall your proud waves stop. God is bigger than you. God can do all things. There is nothing impossible for him. He is perfectly powerful. But notice what Job says in verse 2. He says, I know that you can do all things. I know. This isn't new information for Job. Back in chapter 26, when Job is arguing with his friends, he says things like, God stretches out the north over empty space and he hangs the earth on nothing. And then in, at the end of chapter 26, verse 14, he said, and these are the fringes of his ways. Job knows that God is perfectly sovereign, that he can do whatever he wants. So what is he saying here in chapter 42? If this isn't new information, and he's not like, oh yeah, I didn't create the world, you did. That's not what happened. What's happening? He's remembering. He is reminding himself. He is preaching truth to his own heart. I know that you can do all things. How often we forget. If you're a Christian, you know that God is sovereign because you came to a point in your life where you knew that God was your only option for salvation. He was the only one that could save you. But how often we forget that God can do whatever he wants and we worry, and we stress, and we don't pray, but God can do all things. His unlimited power, Job says. Next, Job talks about God's unstoppable purpose. He says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What's the difference here? Well, first he said, God can do all things. He can do whatever he wants. And now he says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He says, uh, also, God will do whatever he wants. God will accomplish whatever he desires. He says, no purpose of yours. That word purpose is the idea of a plan or an intention. It's used in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel when, when God says that they are one people, they have the same language, now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible. What is it? That whatever they wanted to do in their hearts, they had the resources to do. And Job says, God, whatever God wants to do in his heart, it cannot be thwarted. That word thwarted has the idea of uh, it's translated in the prophets as when they would fortify a city or fortify a wall. Uh, he, he says God's plans, God's purposes, they, they can't be attacked. God's plans are impregnable. They are fortified. They are inaccessible. Nothing is going to stop God's plans. So what ways do we see God accomplishing his purposes in the scripture? We see them in a variety of ways. Jeremiah 23.20 says that God accomplishes his purposes in bringing judgment against false prophets. It says the anger of the Lord will not, turn will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, it says, God anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever his hand and his purpose predestined to occur. You know what God's purposes are? It was to ordain the 
events of Jesus Christ's life and even the Passion Week sending him to the cross was his purpose. His purpose is seen in the plan of salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Do you know why you are saved, Christian? Because no purpose of God can be thwarted. That's why. Because God purposed in his heart that he would save some for his own glory and you were saved. Because no purpose of God can be thwarted. What else can God do? What, what else does God purpose? Well, ultimately, we can say all things. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 46. You guys remember this one, 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Jonathan talked this morning about God's will, his will of decree and his, his moral will. We see here God's will of decree. You know, you know how often that comes true? <gasps> Every time. Always. God's will is accomplished because my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And just so you know, no one's going to stop him. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar is writing, and he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar said, The greatest kings of earth, the greatest angels of heaven, are not going to say to God, What are you doing? No purpose of God's can be thwarted. And yet in this we need to be reminded, again, is God the author of sin? Never. God is never the author of sin. But in God's sovereignty, he even uses the actions of wicked people and their sinful choices to accomplish his plan. One of my favorite verses ever, you should write it down, you should memorize it. Acts 20, 20, uh, Acts 2, 23. In Peter's sermon, he says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. God's sovereignty, man's choices, perfectly compatible. John Gill, a commentator, writes, Job now sees and was fully assured that all that had befallen him was according to the sovereign and inscrutable purposes of God and according to the wise counsels of his will, he knew that not only God could do everything, but that he did whatever he pleased. No purpose of God's will be thwarted. He has an unstoppable purpose. Let's consider some application for you and I. Going away from here, going back to our normal lives and every, everyday things. Recognize, God is perfectly powerful. Nothing, you know, Aaron and I talk all the time. Hey, man, if we could do whatever we wanted, maybe we'd do this, right? And maybe it's remodeling something on our house or going somewhere on vacation or whatever. Man, if we could do whatever. God doesn't think that way. God doesn't say, man, if I could do whatever I wanted, I would do this. You know what he does? He does it. God does whatever he pleases. Why do we worry? Why, why are we so anxious and stressed all the time? Why are we losing sleep at night? God does whatever he wants. There is no one stopping his plan. Everything he does is for the good of his people, for his own glory. What are we doing? A second application that 
that I think is helpful. We even talked about it this morning when Jonathan was in Colossians. How are you praying? Just so you know, between you and God, you know which one gets everything that they want? Not you. God does. God accomplishes whatever his good pleasure is. Therefore, you should pray according to God's good pleasure and his purposes. And guess what? Guaranteed answered prayers. And then, if we really think that God can do all things, that he has unlimited power, are you praying too small? What if God really can save that family member that you just think is absolutely unsavable? He can, and if it's in his good purpose, he will, and nothing's going to stop it. Are we praying according to the power and purpose of God? So the first step in trusting God in the midst of very confusing circumstances when we don't understand is we need to remember God's perfect sovereignty. He can do whatever he wants. He will do whatever he wants. Second, the second step is that we need to recognize our complete ignorance. Recognize our complete ignorance. That is, we recognize that man utterly lacks the knowledge and wisdom to judge God's decisions. First, Job comments on our lack of knowledge. Look in verse 3. Job says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now, if you're paying attention, you notice that that's actually a quotation. Job is quoting what God said to him back in chapter 38, verses 1 and 2. Who is this that hides or, or darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job says, God says to Job that you are, you are hiding, you are, are making black or making dark. You are making it hard to find what? The truth. By what? By you putting your ignorance on top of it. The things that I'm saying are very clear, and you're putting all your wisdom on top of it, and you're obscuring this counsel of mine. It's used in, the, this word hide is used in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 27, when Elisha, you remember the, the story of the Shunammite son, and then the Shunammite son dies, and the Shunammite comes running out, the Shunammite woman comes running out, and, and Elisha says, let her alone, something is wrong, her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me. Normally, Elisha was used to understanding things before he even got there, and he says, God is hiding this from me somehow. God looks at Job and says, you're taking my clear truth and the clear understanding that you should have, and you are hiding it. You are putting it to the side. You're obscuring it. How? Because you are ignorant. You are, are without knowledge. You see, Job, by quoting this back to God, is agreeing. He said, by the way, you remember how you were asking who's the person who is, who is hiding your counsel without knowledge? It's me. I am the one who is doing this. Job recognizes that he simply doesn't have the knowledge that he would need to sit in God's place. He says, okay, I get it. I don't have the knowledge to make decisions like you make decisions. He can't critique, he can't sit in judgment on what God is doing. He simply doesn't have enough information. I am the one without knowledge. Just for you and me, and you know, if you know this, that's great, but a reminder, you don't know what God knows. You just don't. And sometimes we assume that we do. You think, well, clearly, if, if we were in charge, we would do this. Why? Because you think you have all the information. You don't. God does. More than that, Job comments not only just on our lack of knowledge, but on our lack of understanding. Look at the end of chapter uh, 42, verse 3. 
He said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me which I didn't know. Our, our lack of understanding. He said, I declared, I have made known, I, I made statements of things I didn't understand. Understand the idea of perception, being able to really, really work through something and, and understand it. He says, I have spoken of things I don't understand. He says, things too wonderful for me. Uh, that word wonderful or, or marvelous or extraordinary, what is that? Well, in the book of Job, it's used a lot of times. And you know who is the only person who is wonderful or wondrous? It's God. Job 5.9, God does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Job 9.10, God does great things, unfathomable and wondrous works. Job 37.5, God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Job 37.14, Elihu says, O Job, stand and consider the wonders of God. Job looks at God and he says, I have been speaking confidently about things that were too wonderful for me. You know what he means by that? I have been speaking about things that are outside my jurisdiction. Wonderful things are not me. Wonderful things are God things. <laughs> I have been trying to comment and have opinions and, and statements on God things, things that are not in my realm. So remember, think about this. Even if you had all of the information, even if you had all the data, you just don't have the computing power, okay? Your little pea brain can't handle what God has to think about. You understand? You are just too small. God is the only one big enough to make these decisions. Job says, these things were too wonderful for me. I didn't know them. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. There are some things that God gets to know that you don't. And just so you know, it's a lot longer list than you think. God knows them. Matthew Henry writes, God's judgments are a great deep which we cannot fathom, much less find out the source of. We see what God does, but we neither know why he does it what he's aiming at, nor what he will bring it to. These are things too wonderful for us, out of our sight to discover, out of our reach to alter, and out of our jurisdiction to judge. They are things which we know not. It is quite above our capacity to pass a verdict on them. God's judgments are deep. It's the application. That's pretty obvious. <laughs> recognize your own pitiful ignorance. So often we think we know better, we think we know, we think we have all the information, but God is the very source of knowledge and wisdom and there are some things you don't get to know. I was thinking this week and, and I was convicted in my own heart, how often do we speak with very much confidence about things we really don't know a lot about? I'm just saying, we can all go from armchair quarterbacks to internet doctors really quick. And it's bad enough for us to make that mistake with human matters. If you think you know better than professional athletes that do this all day, every day, up to you. But you start thinking that you know what God should be doing and what decisions God should be making, you are walking down a path of foolishness. And that's all there is to it. 
We simply are ignorant and we cannot sit in judgment on God's decisions. So, three steps to trusting God in our circumstances, even when they're confusing. Remembering God's perfect sovereignty, recognizing our complete ignorance, and number three, responding with humble repentance. We need to respond with humble repentance. That is, a proper view of God, that he is sovereign, and a proper view of ourselves, that we are completely ignorant, will necessarily lead to humility, repentance, worship. We see in verse 4 the necessity of that response, the necessity of our response. Look in verse 4. Job says, Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. If you're paying attention again, Job is quoting again from Job chapter 38 when God spoke this to him. God looked at him and said, Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Job is paraphrasing and repeating it back to God again to admit that God is right. He says, hear now, listen up. I will speak, I will ask, and you instruct me. Or, or God says, all right, you think you know things. He says, you instruct me. That is, you make known to me what you think I need to know. Job is quoting from that first time that, that God spoke to him in verse chapter 38. Now, now, there's something interesting going on here. Try and track with me just for a minute, Okay. In chapter 38, God looked at Job and he said, I will ask you and you instruct me. And then, after God said some more things, Job responded. Flip back to chapter 40. Remember, Job chapter 40, verse 2, Lord, the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And what did Job say? Did he have an answer? No. He just said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. Oh, wait. So Job said he wasn't going to speak again. Chapter 40, he said, I'm, not going, I'm done. This is all I'm going to say, and I'm, I'm being quiet. So the question is, why does Job start speaking again in chapter 42 in our passage? Is Job getting the last word? Did he win the argument? <laughs> Let's not be silly. God always wins. God always wins. Uh, I, I can remember, I can hear Pastor Rocky in my head. You can disagree with God all you want. Know that if you do, God will always be right and you will always be wrong. God always wins. Job doesn't get the last word here. Why does Job speak again in chapter 42 when he just said he was putting his hand on his mouth and he was done? Well, the answer is in chapter 40, verses 6 and 7. Job says, I've spoken and I will not answer even twice and I will add nothing more. Verse 6, the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, gird up your loins like a man, I will ask you and you instruct me. God looked at Job and said, you need to answer me. And Job says, I have nothing to say. And God says, not good enough. You need to answer me. And so, we come to chapter 42, verse 1, Job answered the Lord. Why? Because God told him to. God demanded an answer. There was a necessary response that Job needed to have to what God had said. And I think there's a very interesting lesson in that for us. In Job chapter 40, when we read Job saying, I'm putting my hand in my mouth, I'm not saying anything more, we look at that and say, man, look at his humility. That guy, he, he has got it. 
But I'd like to submit to you that there are some times where it is the humble thing and the right thing to do to close your mouth and not say anything. That is true. I would also submit to you that sometimes it is the humble thing and the right thing to open your mouth and say the thing that you don't want to say. Sometimes that thing is, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Let's be honest, you get in a tiff with your wife and, and it's a whole lot easier to say, you know what, let's just not talk about this anymore, especially when you're wrong. But you know what's harder to say? is to open up your mouth and actually have a helpful conversation with your spouse and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, and I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me. Job was trying to get out. He was saying, I, I, I don't have anything to say here. I don't want to get myself in any more trouble. And God said, you need to answer me. And let me tell you all, God demands an answer from you. In one way or another, you are answering God. Whether you are submitting your life to him and walking according to his ways, or whether you are rebelling against his precepts clearly written down in his word, you are responding to God. It's necessary. Job couldn't answer all the questions that God was firing at him. Hey, were, were you there when I, when I set up the entire universe? But Job doesn't have an answer for that. But Job does have to have an answer. So what's his answer? Well, he tells God what he learned through this whole ordeal. And so we come to verse 5, and that's the basis of our response. The basis of our response. Job answers God, and he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. See, he said, I knew about you, God. I've been, in, I've been taught. I've been instructed. I know some theology. I know who you are and, and what you're like. Apparently, he even knew God well enough to respond in repentance and faith and, and walk according to, to God's word, what had been revealed to them at that time. But because back in chapter 1, again, it said he was a righteous man who feared God, and God called him his servant. He did know God. And of course, that's the only way we can know God is by hearing the truth, right? He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Romans ten seventeen. faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. You cannot be saved from your sin and made right before God if you have never heard the truth of God's word. That's not how it works. In Job chapter 26, verse 14, <clears throat> Job says all these wonderful things that God has done, and then he says, Behold, these are the fringes of his ways, and how faint a word we hear of him. He said, I've heard of you, God. I knew some things about you, but I already know that there is so much more that I don't know. How faint a word we hear of him. He said, I, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but what does he say next? But now my eye sees you. Now my eye sees you. Now in the New Testament, we talk a lot about spiritual blindness and, and spiritual sight, right? When you are saved, when you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you go from being a dead blind person to having spiritual eyes to see the truth. But the reality is, this isn't Job's conversion here in chapter 42. He's not saying he's seeing God for the first time. But we even see in the New Testament that our spiritual vision, it, it it gets improved over time, right? It gets refined as we understand more and more of the scripture and more and more of God. O'Donnell commentating on this says, Job finally sees clearly that he cannot see clearly. He finally recognizes that he didn't see as much as he thought he did. 
Job tells God, I am seeing you in a way that I have never seen you before. I am understanding things about your character and your power that I simply hadn't paid attention to. You see, if you are a Christian, your, your spiritual eyes have been opened by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I submit to you that sometimes we're walking around with our eyes half shut and we're not looking for the truth of God when we should be. I know all of you have this experience. You, you go to the eye doctor and they put you in front of that, that thing and they say, all right, this is what you're seeing now. And you're like, yeah, that looks normal. They say, this is what you could be seeing. And they flip the little thing. And then and you're like, I could have been seeing this whole time. And you get a new prescription. You get new contacts, new glasses. And suddenly I, could, I can see, I'm seeing things that I didn't see before. Job looks up at God and he said, I thought I knew. I thought I had all the information. I thought I had heard everything I needed to hear, but I am seeing you differently. Longman commentates, it is one thing to hear God, but quite another thing to encounter God. You see, there's a difference. There's a difference in our lives between knowing things about God and knowing God. Uh, we are, we are a, a church that is blessed to study the Bible a lot. A lot of you have verses memorized and, and all those things, and that's good, and you should do that. But let me remind you that if you are memorizing Bible book themes and, and checking the box every day of your Bible reading plan, and you're not trying to know God, you miss the point. Job says, I see you. And that's ultimately what gives him hope through this whole thing. Job 19, verses 25 to 27, he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on earth. He says, God is real. I know my Redeemer lives. Someday I will see him. Verse 26, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. I'm going to see God in the flesh someday. Job says, I see God. So how can we respond with humility, with, with repentance and all these things? It's because we actually know God. We have a relationship with God, the one whose purposes can't be thwarted, the one who can do all things. You can know him. And so you can respond appropriately. Last. Job comments on the nature of our response. How, how do we actually respond to God when we come to this reality? Verse 6, he says, Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He says, I, I retract, I reject everything that I said before, all the wrong statements that I made, all the stuff that I was declaring and making known when I didn't have the knowledge to do so. I retract all of that. And he says, and I repent. I, I have changed my mind. I have changed my view of myself and of God. Uh, now, some commentators and, and scholars as they study this passage have gotten very confused here. They say, well, why is Job repenting? It said back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Job didn't sin in all these things. Well, it's obviously true that Job did not sin in chapter 1 and chapter 2, but there was a whole lot of chapters in between. Job is not repenting, saying God righteously judged me by taking away my family and my things because I had, had some prior sin. He's not admitting to that. That was one of the arguments he had with his friends. Hey, I don't have a secret sin that I've been holding on to. He's not saying that. What is he saying? He's saying what he just said. I said a bunch of stuff when I didn't have the understanding and, and I thought I knew and I didn't. 
And so he repents. He repents before God because of this, this bitterness of his spirit as he started building up thinking he knew more than he did. Matthew Henry comments that those who are truly penitent mourn for their sins just as heartily as they did for their afflictions. They are in bitterness as for an only son of a firstborn for they are brought to see more evils in their sins than in their troubles. Job came to repent in dust and ashes not because of his affliction but because of his sin and his failure to understand who God was. If you have a proper view of who God is, of how big he is, and how he accomplishes all of his good pleasure, you will necessarily respond in faith and repentance like Job did. Job did. And now, again, this is not Job's initial faith and repentance. We always talk about faith and repentance. That's the initial conversion, right, of, of the believer. But you know that that's just the first time you have faith and repentance. Faith and repentance is every day of your life up until the Lord returns. We will express faith and repentance before God if we really have an accurate view of who he is. And just so you know, if you're an unbeliever, if you, you're not a Christian, you have never submitted yourself to the will of Jesus Christ and, and placed yourself at his mercy to save you from your sin and the just punishment of your sin, actually one of the problems, it might just be ignorance, it might just be rebellion, but one of the problems is you think God is too small. Because if you really understood how big God is, you would repent in dust and ashes. Job was in dust and ashes back in chapter 2 when he was grieving over his losses, and now in chapter 42 when he grieves over his sin. When we are tempted to think too highly of ourselves, the reality is our view of God is just too small. But that's not how it is. That's not the truth. The truth is that you are very small, and God is very big. Even when we don't understand, we must trust God's sovereignty over our lives. Steve Lawson wrote this, kind of summarizing the section. He said, When there are no answers, there is still comfort for your troubled heart. Peace is found in knowing the God who is there and who is sovereign. Strength is found in knowing the God who controls the universe. As we come to the end of the book, Job looks up and sees God in a new and fuller way. He realizes that God is perfectly orchestrating all the events of his life, and he can trust God with his life. God is God. Let's pray together. God, you are the great and powerful one. You alone are sovereign over all the universe. You alone are sovereign over our salvation. God, we must recognize that we, we will never perfectly understand our lives. We will never have all the answers, and that's okay. Because you do, and you are sovereign, and you are the one who your purpose will never be thwarted. God, help us to remember your sovereignty, to admit our own ignorance, to, to respond humbly God, help us to trust in you, to put away the, the stress and anxiety and, and that we would come to you in humble prayer, that we would trust you with our lives. God, we know that you do all things according to the counsel of your own will and those things are for the good of your people and for your own glory. 
And God, we praise you for that. You are a great God that we serve. Thank you, God, for your word. We pray all this in the name of our Lord. Amen.